This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. So brothers and sisters, welcome again to the Bible study at Christchurch, Jerusalem. The last words of Moses. We are uh, gathering again to wrestle with Deuteronomy chapter 22, the second half um, of Moses's farewell speech, his last opportunity to shepherd, his last opportunity to instill the faith, his last opportunity to mold and shape the people of Israel, the people of God, as they're about to enter Canaan, uh, begin the conquest, and then set up a community that is supposed to reflect the character of the Lord. And um, so thanks for joining us wherever you are in podcast land. And we will begin in a time-honoured fashion of acknowledging the Lord's presence and his spirit that is within us. And Sharon will lead us in prayer. Lord, we just uh, quiet our hearts now and our minds from all the busyness of our lives. And we just thank you for who you are, Father, that you're the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you're the God of heaven's army, and that you are the one who leads and guides us and keeps us, Lord. We thank you so much for uh, inviting John with us to join us, a friend in this area. And we just praise you and thank you for your faithfulness to each one of us, that you've spoken into our lives and taught us about you and showed us your, your light and your salvation, that you draw all men to yourself, Lord. And I ask in Jesus' name, by the power of your spirit today, that you would draw more and more people to you, Lord, during these trying days of craziness and uh, ill health. And we just pray that you would guide and direct us today as we speak and that help us to speak with only your words and the spirit of God and help us to listen and to uh, obey you, Lord, to open our hearts to your word and just see new things in your word, wonderful things in your word this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you very much. Amen. All right, guys. So, um, I, as, as is our fashion, I read uh, the notes that we from our discussion from from last week. So attached is the PDF. You can download that in the chat, uh, or if you're listening on podcast, you can have downloaded it from the website and uh, can follow along. So chapter twenty-two covers a range of issues and commandments for the emerging Israelite society, focusing on laws of kindness and community responsibility. Several of the laws also deal with various issues of separation. These rules were for the people of of Israel in Canaan. So how would any of this have any bearing on Gentiles living in foreign lands today? Jewish exegesis of the Bible rests on the principle of pardes, pronounced pardes. Pardes holds that every verse, word, and subject in the Hebrew Bible can and should be interpreted in a minimum of four ways. The actual number is up to 13, depending on which rabbi you go for. But there's at least seven to nine that I know of. Simply put, the four pardes are as follows. P for pshat, that is the literal, that is the plain and literal meaning of the text. So what does the sentence mean? It means what it literally means. D, drasha, that's where you exegete the text to make it practical. How do I take this verse and actually make it 
applicable to a listener or myself. We call those sermons. Okay, so you have a sermon which does a durasha on the literal meaning of the text and makes it applicable to the community. Remez, that is a hint, an allusion or use of allegory. That is, uh, what does this text allude to? What does it foreshadow? Can I uh, change the, the, the subjects to create a, 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 a prophecy or something like that or a, a piece of allegory? And you see that both in the New Testament as well in a lot of Midrashim. And then the last of the four, the basic four, is the sod, the mystery. What is that? That is, after all the effort that we put in to understanding the text, we acknowledge that we as humans cannot know everything and that the Messiah will one day explain the mysteries of the text to us. So, for example, uh, a, a Jewish comment on the Bible will be, when the Messiah comes, he will explain the uh, words of the Torah to us. Not only that, when the Messiah comes, he will explain the meaning of every letter of the words of Torah to us. Not only that, when the Messiah comes, he will explain the gaps in between the letters, in between the words of the text. They, they go that deep into, uh, into, into the text. So they acknowledge that they themselves will never, never know uh, everything. Jewish exegesis says that all interpretations and the use of the text are valid as long as they do not break Peshat. That's the only unbreakable rule in Jewish exegesis. You cannot go against the literalness of the text. For example, now I don't know if Naamah's here. Is our lovely lady Naamah around? No. Okay. So her name, Naamah, is uh, named after the wife of Noah. However, actually, if you read the Bible, Noah's wife is not named. It just says Noah and his wife. Well, obviously, she had a name, didn't she? Uh, yes. But we don't know what it is. So somewhere along the line, there's some midrash or some discussion, and they give Noah's wife a name. They call her Naamah. And then for the rest of creation, uh, rest of uh, history, she's known as Naamah. Is it true? We don't know. Does it stop Noah from actually having a wife? That is the literalness of the text. No. So we may as well call her Naamah. And a lot of people running around Israel now called Naamah, named after Noah's wife, even though that is not what the Bible actually says. So basically every character in the Bible that doesn't have a name actually does have a name. The Midrash gives them all kinds of names, all kinds of really cool backstories. Um, but none of that will ever go against the literalness of the text. The Bible, the biblical text then becomes timeless. How does that mean? Because you can keep looking at these deeper levels, it can speak to every generation and to the world. It is transferable to people, places, and ages. The spirit of the Torah remains on the hearts of the people as the prophet Jeremiah said that it would. All scripture remains God-breathed and useful for doctrine and right behavior. So now returning to the text, Moses initially highlights the sin of doing nothing. This is in verse 1. Not doing good when good is the obvious choice, 
is regarded as a sin. Now, this is echoed in the epistle of James, chapter 4, verse 17, where he writes, If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. Moses is urging the people to keep a watch out for their brother's needs. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. This command remains applicable to this day across borders, time zones, denominations, and race. Faith in the Messiah does not cancel or fulfill the intention of this command. You are your brother's keeper. Following this is the command to keep the distinction between the sexes. The Peshat draws attention to the wearing of women's clothing by a man and vice versa. Following this is the command to keep the distinction between uh, the, the sexes. The Peshat draws attention to the wearing of women's clothing by a man and vice versa. Ancient dress had common items such as robes and headwear. However, there were also certain items of clothing that were characteristics of males and females. The drashah was not, that is the exegesis, was not to blur the line between the sexes. In the beginning, God had created male and female. And in today's world, our society is plagued with gender confusion. Or as Moses declares, an abomination to the Lord. Scottish kilts do not create gender confusion. Dressing in drag does, and it is destructive. And that's right. So try, try call a Scottish guy dressed in a kilt a girl, and you will end up on your back with a sore face. <laughs> if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, and the second is to love our neighbor, then Deuteronomy 26 verse 6, 22 verse 6 is known as the least of the commandments. And it pertains to the kindness of animals, in this case, to a mother bird and her egg. This command, the least, also has the blessing or the promise of a blessing for being obedient. The same blessing is given in the command to honor parents, that is, long life. God had told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to dominate the earth. Domination infers taking responsibility and caring for the world. Hinted in this command is the intention against greed and overtaxing the environment, such as overfishing. Using the Jewish exegetical concept of Kalvachomer, another one uh, of the ways of reading Bible, which means from the lighter to the heavier, or as the New Testament phrases it, how much more, then we see that if we can be kind and gentle to little things, like birds, then this will lead us to being kind and gentle in bigger things, like humans. Verse 8 brings in the rule for fences around rooftops. It's a practical command at the literal level. That is, you got a roof, put a fence on. Going further into the intention of the Torah, we note that we should have responsibility for the safety and welfare of others in our community. Physical and practical guards are good. What then of our spiritual guards around the community? We should be concerned that our neighbor does not fall from our roof, just as much as we are concerned that they do not fall from faith. 
Verses 9 to 12 represent or present the four laws of separation, the separation of planted crops, the separation of working animals, the separation of materials and clothing, and the addition of tzitzit to remind us of the Torah and our obligations to God and not to the world. These commands have practical literal value, although we do not know, always know what they are. Using the techniques of drasha and remez, that is, exegesis and allegory, we discussed a plethora of ways in which these verses could be applied to us spiritually to this day. Paul uses allegory of not being unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Vida noted that the seed could be the word of God and explained how we should not filter it with the word of the world, which is quite nice. In summary, then, we noted that the Torah remains functioning and applicable on our hearts, just as the prophets have proclaimed. Practically and literally, Moses is requiring the people of God to live lives that reflect the character of God to the nations around. A society created by God, guarding and preserving creation, taking responsibility for neighbours, keeping a distinction in biology of the sexes, and putting in place measures that will assist Israel in remembering the Torah of the Lord. Okay, that's a little summary of our uh, discussion from last week. So now we're going to continue uh, from verse 13, uh, reading until chapter 23, uh, which mainly concerns uh, sexual immorality. So I'm expecting lots of discussion, yeah, about uh, a topic we probably all don't really want to talk about because um, we're all embarrassed, but we're going to talk about it anyway because it's in the Bible. Okay, so Moses speaks. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity, then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity, and this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. And then the elders of that city shall take the man, and they will whip him. And they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife and he may not divorce her all his days. If the thing is true that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. 
If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with the stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country, a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her and, and only the man who lay, then, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offence punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbour because he met her in the open country and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. All right. Now, I know we read this last week, but is there anything there that uh, jumps out that um, uh, initially shocks people, perhaps? Okay, probably is all talking about sex that shocks everyone. Um, but is there anything there that uh, needs to be uh, initially brought forward from? Yeah, Aaron, um, verse 30. When I read that, it just reminds me of um, the story with Noah and could yes. there be any parallels with, uh, uh, you know, uncovering the, you know, Noah's, the son, uh, you know, the whole idea of, of um, you know, that they say that the, the, they say the rabbis say that there could be some sexual undertones in that. So either yeah. some sort of a sexual relationship or, or the son with the wife, with, with Noah's wife, and then that thereby having his father's nakedness uncovered. Well, the, the, the interesting story in Genesis is um, uh, it, it, can, it can definitely imply, imply exactly that. If you turn to Genesis just briefly, uh, then the passage is very interesting. Um, which one is it? Chapter 9. Chapter 9. Yes. Like verse eight, the so actually, starting at verse 18 is where you want to start. So the sons of Noah, so we've got the Bnei Noah, and uh, Noah is, of course, not Jewish. We're not, there's no Jews yet. Okay, this is all um, people. Okay, the sons of Noah went forth from the ark. They were Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Ham was the father of Canaan. Right. So, what's what's very different about that initial sentence? Initial difference is only Ham is listed there as a father. Shem and Yafet aren't listed as having any kids. Why does the text bother to tell you that Ham is the father of Canaan? To what purpose is that information? We don't know yet. But it's a, it's a warning sign to Jewish exegetes, to rabbis who go, hang on, why does the text need to note this? Then it says, these three were the sons of Noah. 
And from these people, the whole earth was dispersed. So we get, you know, these people started the world. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. Okay, great, excellent. He drank the wine and became drunk. Not so good. And he lay uncovered in his tent. Oops. And Ham, the father of Canaan, again, we're so desperate to tell us that Ham has a son. He saw his, the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers outside. Okay. And then Shem, Yafet took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, walked backwards, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So how did he know? Don't know. What did he do? Don't know. He said, what does he say? Verse uh, 25, can you read it, Yvonne? Yeah. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be he to his brothers. Okay. Why curse Canaan? Because the sons were blessed when they went into the ark. The Lord had blessed them. So Ham, Shem, and Yafet go into the ark. Excellent. They're blessed. It still doesn't give us an answer. Why curse Canaan? Maybe he's the one that really did the dirty deed. There you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's actually the Jewish exegesis is uh, the reason why the text is constantly referring that Ham is the father of Canaan is that Ham notices what Canaan is doing. It's not Ham doing it. Canaan doing it, okay? And uh, this also brings in another um, part of Jewish exegesis where the beginnings and the ends always occur in the same fashion, same style, same way. That is, if, if uh, for example, if um, a virgin, Eve, hears the voice of God and disobeys, how do you correct it? You get a virgin, Mary, hear the voice of God and obey. If Canaan did something bad against the, the brand new people of the world as they were trying to figure it out, which land are we going to bring the people of Israel into to be a light to the nations? Canaan. To the land of Canaan, right? Okay, not the land of Ham, okay, the land of, uh, of, of Canaan. But, um, but Aaron, if, um, I mean, it's still Canaan did the dirty work. Why... Well, okay, no, all right, I, I, I got it. <laughs> yeah, so it's just, it's just a piece of exegesis. Bernardo, you're up. Okay, Mexico, speak. Hi. Hey. Shalom. Shalom. Is, is the, the hammering too strong? I can just type in the text. <laughs> no, go on, brother. Okay. okay so first thanks. of all, you've got to tell us, uh, are you building an extension to your house? Is that what you're doing? No, I wish. It's, your wife's just an, fixing the kitchen? This, That's awesome. This one, one of my neighbors, one of my neighbors is remodeling. Okay. What is it, Bernardo? Go for it. So uh, the, the versions that, that you read... Uh, for the word damsel, you guys have virgin in all the all the all the verses. Yeah, we got virgin here. 
And, and, and in the verse 15, what do you have there? The damsel's virginity? Yeah. It's the, the tokens of the, of, the, of the virgin's virginity? Yeah. Oh, I got the young woman. Got girl yeah. maiden. Yeah. So, yeah. The point is she's a virgin. And uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, when we discuss the text, why is the text so concerned about virginity? Okay, that's a, that's a good a good question. All right. So, uh, um, hello, Aaron. Yes. All right. Um, one of the things that um, kind of strikes me there is um, even the 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 lady that is betrothed is treated like as if she's married already. Correct. Because. If, yeah, it's given the same status of a married woman, you know, and it, it kind of strikes me very, very interesting. Yeah. Yes, it is interesting that once pledged, that is essentially marriage. So we then need to discuss what really is marriage. Is it the ceremony? Is it a piece of paper? What is it? And uh, yeah. so that's that, that's yeah. a good yeah. that's a good a good comment. The, the biblical text de defines the lady once she's pledged to be married as essentially already married, which is an interesting yeah. thought. Yeah. And uh, there's there's different ways of taking that spiritually, but we'll get to it hopefully when we when we get there. All yeah. right. Good point. Yeah. Good point. All right. So let's um let's go back into the actual text and begin. And um, we, I guess I think we need to acknowledge that <clears throat> uh, the ancient world, uh, virginity was actually very important. doesn't seem to be very important in the modern world, uh, unfortunately. Um, but in the ancient world, it was, not just in Israelite society, but also in many cultures. So... Um, Verse 13, we have the issue of uh, a man and uh, taking his new betrothed wife and uh, for some reason um, not liking the, uh, the experience. So um, uh, if a man takes a wife and goes in and hates her, now why would he do such a thing? Like, what, what does it mean by uh, hate? He accuses her of misconduct. And he brings a bad name upon her. I took this woman and I came near her and I did not find evidence of virginity. Okay. So, okay, let's, let's uh, just unpack that little, little bit. Is the issue the fact that he... Uh, doesn't think she's a virgin, or is the issue something else? What do you think? Something else. Okay, so you're gonna go with the something else? Yeah. Okay. I think that she that he found that she wasn't a virgin, so he wasn't too pleased. Right, okay, so the that that's what the, the Peshat, the literal part of the text is, is um, he says, look, I didn't find she's a virgin. I mean, he's obviously unhappy. So there is the potential he's unhappy for other reasons and he's just using the virginity as a way to get out of this marriage. Mm -hmm. um, 
In exactly, okay. Bernardo says both. <laughs> That's a good Jewish answer, Bernardo. Yeah. What's the answer? Uh, it's all of the above. <coughs> um, uh, how, how could he, what are some of the different ways that he could have attracted this wife? In, in, the, in, in Sorry? Money. Okay. You know, he would yeah. like to take care of her and she would be... You know, like a dowry, she would be taken care of and, and secure. Okay, so that would be like the normal way. He, he likes her or she's attracted to the family because of money. It's prearranged marriage. So that could be one way. Uh, he, he gathers a wife because he's rich enough to actually support one. What are some of the other ways? We've discussed it in the last couple of weeks. How else do you, can you get a wife? Redeemer from, uh, like, say, it's your brother's died or something yeah that's actually this week's parasha isn't it those who are reading uh this week's parasha you find um the interesting story of judah and tamar Mm -hmm. where uh, judah has three sons and er marries a lady called tamar he dies uh early doesn't say how the next son comes along and um doesn't uh, do his duty and he dies Judy gets all very upset and uh, says, no one's going to marry this girl. She's obviously too dangerous. Um, She's radioactive or something. And then Tamar plays a trick on him and uh, succeeds in getting herself pregnant. Uh, Judah acknowledges the pregnancy and Tamar becomes part of the messianic line. Notice that Tamar is part of the messianic line not because of Judah. Isn't that interesting? Tamar's the one that is the good girl and does her job and is rewarded with being part of the the Davidic line. Judah couldn't have been bothered. He was doing his best to protect his kids. He's there by accident, which is a very interesting thought. Um, You know, go one for the women, all right? They're obviously doing well. Um, uh, Melody, uh, Melody Grayers is correct. You can attract a wife by conquering people. We discussed that in the last couple of uh, uh, sessions. You can attack a city, find a lady, and you have to marry her. You can't, uh, you can't rape them and then and then throw them away. Um, there's all of that discussion on you know shaving the head and dressing her up and giving her a large mourning period. But you could have attracted a wife through battle. None of this. The, the context doesn't say how the guy gets a wife, but he gets one. And, uh, and, uh, and yes, and, and Rebecca says, uh, Rivka and Isaac, the father arranges it. Yes. How did you get your wife? Dad sort of, you know, brought one home. Look what happens. Um, uh, yeah, that, that really doesn't happen very much anymore, but um, used to. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> for, for whatever reason, He's not impressed. And, uh, and it, it is also true that in the context of the ancient world, virginity was uh, highly esteemed uh, and, uh, and seemed to have a large segment of honour and shame that comes to it. So there's an accusation. The man doesn't like the lady. He is now married. He actually has a responsibility to care for this uh, lady. So, what are some of the responsibilities of a husband in the ancient world? 
and maybe even today. Fred Erner, provide for their families. Okay, so he, I guess, according to uh, uh, Jewish exegesis, the husband has to provide the woman three things. He has to provide her with food and oh, shelter. Oh, and the pleasure or something like that. Correct. He also has to uh, satisfy her twice a week. Okay, uh, once on Tuesdays and once on Shabbat. So lucky him. Food, yeah. shelter, provision, safety, says Rory. Yep, absolutely. He's got to do all of that. And one more thing. So food, shelter, provision, fun, and one more thing. He must provide the lady. What are they? Prayer covering. Prayer covering. Uh, that's that's really nice. We would wish, and and maybe so, but that not uh, according to Jewish exegesis. But we'll throw it in there. Children says Melody. Yes, that is true. He must provide her with children. That, uh, you know, women having children was a really big deal in the Middle East. It was so big that what does Paul say in the New Testament about women and childbirth? You shall be saved through childbirth. Yes. And if anyone knows how to exegete that text, I'm all <laughs> for it. Okay. Because I really still don't know. <laughs> but, um, but it's there. It's there. It, the, women having children was, was such a powerful event because, you know, God created people. He created people. And what came out of a woman? A person, right? I mean, no one in the ancient world could figure out how this happened, okay? You know, one minute uh, a lady's completely normal, and then nine months later a whole person sort of pops out. Like, how does she do that? So they became part of, uh, and in many cultures, uh, not the Jewish one, but in many cultures, they became the very mystical beings. You know, they were part of Mother Earth, you know, part of this uh, this creation experience. Um, and so much so you know, that even in Jewish theology, it appears in Paul that, that women having children um, still has a very high place. So uh, this man who takes a woman... He's actually got some responsibilities. You got to pay for the girl. You got to protect the girl. He's got to give her children. He's got a, he's got a bunch of stuff that he's got to do. However, he wakes up in the morning for whatever reason and he doesn't like her, but doesn't exactly say why. However, the context is is on a literal level. Um, he he accuses her of not being a virgin. So, in verse eighteen. Uh, the father of the young woman and her mother, so the, the parents, can, shall take and bring out the evidence of the virginity to the elders of the city gates. There's a little trial going on. Um, and for those of you who have been to Israel, has anybody been to the northern city of Dan when you were here in Israel? It's a, it's a great uh, archaeological site because it actually has the city gate. It's got a, a, a fully functioning city gate that includes the area where the elders sit, including their benches, um, which is a very nice little piece of um, uh, archaeology. And so you would go to an area like that and, uh, uh, and the trial would commence. So the father of the young woman, this is verse 16, shall say to the elders, Look, you know, I gave this uh, my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. So in, in this case, it's an in, inner circle idea. It's not uh, some 
slave woman we've, we've captured. Um, and behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. I mean, it was a really big deal. Okay, not so much anymore. Um, and yet, here is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. And um, I know that <clears throat> probably uh, that can get a little um, awkward in, in uh, talking about it, but in the ancient world and to this day, cultures still do this. They still um, respect virginity in some cultures, not in ours. And in uh, marriage beds uh, on the wedding night, there is a special blanket that is put down on the bed that the couple must then uh, consummate the marriage on. And they have to give that blanket to the parents. Okay. That is still done to this day. Wow. And, uh, and was done. Yeah, I've been in Israel 22 years and I've only, it's only happened once in Christchurch where uh, an Arab couple, Christian Arab couple got married and had their wedding night uh, in Christchurch in one of our rooms and uh, we were given the blanket and we had to put the blanket on the bed and in the morning we had to get the blanket and we had to wrap it up and we had to give it to the parents who came and collected it. Right? So uh, it's, still, it's still done to this day. Okay. Um, uh, and, and, and obviously was done in biblical period. Um, but it does show us uh, an element of honour and shame in a society that is not pre present in today's society. And uh, what are some of the strengths, do you think, of the concept of honour and shame? Any ideas? Anyone want to throw out something? I mean, I, I bet uh, Shimshon from Nigeria could teach us a little bit more about honour and shame, which is probably still very prevalent in uh, African society. Would that be true, Shimshon? I think he's not in. Yeah, he was in. I don't know what happened. He's not in right oh, now. Oh, okay. But I'm still going to guess that that's a yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I'll speak for him. Okay. Um, unfortunately, in our Western society, we have certainly lost honor and shame, and much of our society engages in shameful acts, and we think is really cool. But uh, in the ancient world, that was not so much. So, okay, so what do you think of uh, what, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of honor shame culture? Well, any he just came back on. Um, Aaron has a question for you. Shimshon, oh. <laughs> are you there? I think he must be traveling. Yeah, yes, that's right. I, I was going to make a comment, Aaron. Go for um, it. One of the things that the, they had a, a you know, reverential fear of the Almighty because I was looking at uh, the verses of, uh, 21, 22, 23, all end in you shall purge the evil from your midst. Yeah. And um, and so the, I think a healthy fear of God, you know, and where they realize that the country is going to be affected by something the individual does, which is also a concept that's foreign to us right now. But I think that, uh, you know, if you're the one that's bringing evil, you know, there's there should be a fear, you know, not just shame, but also fear to be that one who's bringing a repro reproach where, 
you know, your country may be negatively affected by the almighty. Absolutely, Jennifer. Really good point. And I'm going to put that in my notes. It is a definite, because I really like the way you said it. It is a definite reverence and fear of God. Hence the purging of evil uh, and this healthy fear, which is partly linked to honor and shame, means that, um, that you're going to work against something. What are we actually trying to work against? Like what is this whole scenario trying to stop? Here we are. Moses is bounding before the people of Israel. You're going to go into the promised land. You're going to set up a beautiful community. Um, what are we trying to guard? What is it we're trying to protect? Don't want oh, sin yeah. in the camp. Yeah, okay, fair enough. A good point. Sin, what else? Holiness. In okay, there's, a, there's definitely an element of holiness thrown in there that we're going to be acting in a certain way. The purity of the society depends on the purity of the people in it, right? Correct. There's a definite purity issue going on here. So this, I mean, the, the Jewish people were obsessed with purity, hence the mikvahs and things, but baptizing in water wasn't only one way of gaining purity, physically behaving in certain ways, and that included in our marriage relationships that if we married somebody, we weren't going to so quickly and so easily throw away people we were supposedly unhappy with. So we had a purity issue with virginity. We're going to protect it. We're going to guard it. We're going to safeguard it. And we want to make sure that no one could just take it whenever they felt like it. And, uh, and this would be linked to the honor of the family and the shame of the family, the honor of God and the shame of God. You know, Aaron, uh, it's very interesting. My, you know, my husband's Asian and, um, and they're from a very traditional family in, in, in Taipei. And um, I remember when we had our first son, Christopher, she, and then I got pregnant again and I had a second son. And, I, and I, I, in my mind, I thought two children at the time and later that changed. But when I told my mother-in-law that the second son was a, a, a boy, I thought that she would want it to be a girl so that she could have like a couple, right? A, a boy, a male and a female. And she says, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I'm so glad that it's a boy. And I said, why? She says, well, if Christopher shames the name of the family, then the second son, Jonathan, can, can, can re, you know, to, to, he can lift up the name again. And just nearing to an Asian, like being, it's just my whole mindset. It's amazing how Western civilization, we do not have that. The whole concept of shame. And they say it's called saving face. You know, because yeah. in a sense, there's this the shame, and so it's it's amazing how it's really, really embedded in Asian society up until now. You know, the the Middle East and, and the Far East, and, and it's just it's crazy for me. It was a whole mind shift, and and um, even giving names of what names you give to your children. I mean, there's so many, so many things that 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 are part of that. It just and but the other interesting point, how you had said the things that a man provides for a woman at the time, and I, I thought it was actually the opposite that the woman, uh, she would have to, in a sense, be responsible for providing the children. 
Um, my, my, my husband's grandmother, uh, she only had one son and he had three daughters. And when she was 99 or before that, she was asking her son to have, to find a woman <laughs> that would get, so she, he only had one son and yeah, so only daughters. That, and so she did not have anyone to carry the name. So at 90 something, she was like, are you sure son that you don't want to, <laughs> can we find a, a woman for you, you know, a Hagar so that you can have a son <laughs> for her. And then, and then the other sisters, like the other daughters are like, mom, stop that. We don't do that anymore. But it's just, it's amazing. How <laughs> well, I think we still do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But in, in, in other ways. Yeah. True. <laughs> yeah. It, the, I, the, it is true in the, in the Jewish world, that a woman can demand of her husband three things. He can demand food and shelter. He can demand, uh, she can demand uh, conjugal rights and she can demand children. Um, and uh, and I, I do remember being in a um, Shabbat dinner in Mer Sharim in a community called Toldot Aharon. These are the guys who walk around in gold robes on Shabbat. So instead of wearing black and white, they're wearing gold. It's called the Yerushalmi in Hebrew. And uh, they're a Hungarian sect. Uh, uh, they practice absolutely no forms of birth control. They have the highest birth rate of about 16 children per woman. Uh, it's um, incredible. But they also work. They do not just study. They also work. So they're actually quite a wealthy community. Anyway, called Toldat Aharon. So I'm having Shabbat dinner with them and it's like a thousand people. Everyone's having a really good time. And then all of a sudden the rabbi gets up and he says, good Shabbos. And that's the signal that we're all done. And uh, everyone just bolted from the big dining hall where everybody was. And I, remember, I remember turning to my chaperone who took me to the place and said, uh, where are they all going? Like, wow. I mean, seriously, everyone just ran. One minute we're drinking, laughing, discussing Bible, dancing, singing psalms, and all of a sudden everyone's running out the door. And he said, "Well, they're all they're all going home to uh, uh, do the deed." And uh, because on on Shabbat on Friday night the man is not allowed to say no. Okay, okay, not the woman, the man. Okay, the man is not allowed to say, oh, I'm sorry, honey, I have a headache. Uh -uh, not on that night, you know, you take some Panadol and get busy. Okay, you're not allowed, you're not allowed to say no. And uh, I'm going, oh, my gosh, these, these Orthodox Jews, they take this really seriously. Um, Jerusalem is going to be a very happy night in about half an hour from now. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a different world that we look at when we look at the orthodox world we might see the subjugation of women although in there is a a certain way where women have a certain piece of honor and bearing and the, and here in the biblical text she has honor and bearing and she needs to be defended and she is defended by her parents uh, who are also suffering from honor and shame and so in verse 18, the elders of the city, okay, they take a look. And if it's true, they take the man, this husband, okay, and they go and whip him. They don't kill him or anything. They whip him. Uh, now, And they fine him 100 shekels of silver, which is a large chunk of money. And uh, they have to give that to the father of the young woman. They don't give it to the young woman. Notice that. Okay. Um, uh, she doesn't get anything. 
Now, why would she not get any money? Do you think? Because of the culture back then. The she would benefit from it. She belongs to him. Right. Correct? Correct. So she got all his stuff anyway. <laughs> so no point giving her anything. She got everything. So we've got to give it to dad. Rent right. for the articles of purification. Yeah. Um, but they whip the guy. They don't kill him. Why don't they kill him? Because he needs to produce a child. Yes, absolutely, Shirley. He's still got a job. We can't let him off the hook. You, you, okay, you can beat him up a little and, uh, you know, scold him a little, but you can't sort of injure him beyond repair. He's still got to protect her. He's still got to provide her children. He's still got to go out and work so he can provide for the house. He, he, you can't get him off scot-free on this. Uh, and so you don't kill him. You actually uh, keep him alive and make him pay uh, the father-in-law. And, uh, and the verse uh, 18, uh, 19 does, does mention the idea of shame, a bad name upon the virgin of Israel. And uh, not just a virgin of a house, but the virgin of Israel, that uh, women were attached to the nation and uh, so was their, their virginity. And she shall be his wife. That is, he cannot divorce her all his days. So even though Moses had in previous occasions actually permitted a divorce, no longer in this case. He was never allowed to divorce this woman for any reason. He could, he had to keep paying for her. He had to keep providing for her and he had to provide her children, which is, uh, so he had to be very, what we're setting up is a precedence. Be very careful when um, uh, A, choosing a wife and B, turning around and saying you don't like her anymore. However, Okay, let's go on to the negative side, verse 20. But if it's true, now what would be true? If there's no evidence, right? So we don't have a piece of cloth. It didn't work out. Uh, then, then there's something that's a bit more serious. Now then you bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city stone her to death in the front of her father's house. I mean, that seems quite terrible, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you to purge the evil from your midst. Let's unpack some of that. And uh, Jennifer's already mentioned it with the term of reverence and fear for God and purging evil, which, as we mentioned last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago, in our community, we don't purge anything from our society. We keep all our sins close to home and we seem to thrive on it. Um, yeah which is very unfortunate. Um, but uh, here they, uh, they, they do something which seems rather uh, <laughs> harsh. Now, um, uh, what's the issue here? Like why do we take such a drastic stage step? What, what is this woman apparently now doing? Well, it's clearly disgraceful in Israel to, you know, play the harlot basically before her marriage. Right. Okay. Playing the harlot. That's a very interesting phrase you said, Sharon. Who else gets accused of playing the harlot? Israel herself. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Jennifer says, wicked is now considered cool. Yes, unfortunately. 
We are in that generation where we call good evil and evil good. Can you hear the footsteps of the Messiah? Okay. Yes, there, there, is, there is this element of, um, of, uh, of yeah, prostitution, of uh, whoring, of this, this uh, a very loose woman, which is a rather um, non-desired uh, uh, person or thing. And so much so that it's even the phrase that God himself labels Israel. He says, you went out, you know, uh, playing the harlot. You went out like a bride that was attached to me. But when I talked to you, you weren't virgin. You were off um, uh, with other gods. And, uh, and the result of that is a purging from the house of Israel. Uh, and as if we had our little lawyer friend Roddy here, who's away studying uh, for the diaconate, um, he would say this is a worst-case scenario, right? This is not something we do every day. This is the um, the the the, uh, the end result of a bad um, of a bad situation. Uh, in verse twenty-two, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, this is of course adultery. Both shall die, okay, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you'll purge evil from Israel. So you do get this uh, injunction from Moses to purge the adulterers from Israel. So let's take that into John 8. And, of course, you end up with the woman caught in adultery. And what does Jesus do? He lets her off, okay? Um, a, does he really? And B, what's the other part of the issue, which is uh, not discussed in John, but is obvious from Jeremiah. Deuteronomy 22? Oh, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't let her off I, Correct. I, in the sense because he does still apply the law. It's just that there's not, you have to have at least two, the, the, the male and the female. Correct. So there's no man there. You can't just kill the woman for adultery. You got to kill the man too, and he's not there. So this is just not going to happen. We're obviously got uh, a rather neat trick up our sleeve, and uh, and any witnesses, which would have been the guys casting the first stone, should have also been able to point out who the man was, but they can't do it. And uh, and so Jesus also brings in the element of forgiveness and mercy, which is something we also always need to remember when applying any law. That I know that people do bad things, but there also must be mercy and forgiveness. And if there isn't, then suddenly we've become rather legalistic. And, uh, and uh, because if a man is found lying with a wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, you shall purge the evil from the land. Okay, so. And, and Aaron, I'll just jump in there real quick. Not judging others when we're guilty ourselves is a principle too, eh? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. However, the, the, we can't also, on, on, on that, just because we're all guilty of absolutely every sin, uh, if we took that literally, we would never judge anybody on anything and we would never throw anybody in prison because we're all guilty of all the crimes. So, it's true. We have to be very careful about judging other people, but we also have to be careful that we don't allow sin to run rampant. There still has to be this thing called purging the evil from the community, whatever that, that And means. we can judge where we have authority. So we can, 
you know, judge our children in the church, you know, as a community, there could also, where we have that authority. If, uh, so we, we can judge, uh, make judgment where we do have authority. Right. Uh, so in terms of verse 22, what major biblical character figure do we not apply this rule to? <laughs> David, no, David. David. Yeah, King David. There's a good one. <laughs> he, was, he was actually, he did get some stoning, which is interesting. There was some stoning in another incident with him. Right, but not to death. Right? Yeah. Both of them shall die. Okay. There's so, also that concept of stealing, you know, Uriah's wife. So, you know, in a sense, you have to pay back four times. Didn't he lose four children? Yes, he does. He, uh, he takes somebody else's and he pays four times. Yes. But verse 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. But he doesn't. Okay. So can I, you got you to work with me here because it becomes, up, it becomes a Jewish principle and a New Testament principle, which is also a Jewish principle. Um, we know what the rule is. We know what the ideal is. But there's another element of the story. There's another characteristic of God which cannot be ignored. And what's that? Forgiveness. Correct. Well done. Yes. And so you end up with a phrase called mercy triumphs over right. judgment, which occurs in the book of James, but was already around in the Second Temple period, that we knew what the ideal was. We knew what, we, what right and what wrong was. However, we also knew that God was forgiving because we would appeal to God about being a harlot. We played the harlot as an entire nation. So we should be wiped out. There should be no Jews. There should be no Israel. Just get, you know, we're all done. But that's not the character of God. And while there is consequences to actions, and the Jewish people will tell you again and again, oh, my gosh, have we suffered consequences to our actions, okay? Right? You know, you, you, you ask them, why was the temple destroyed? They don't say because some nasty Babylonians came in. They blame themselves. They say idolatry. All right? We, 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 we did idolatry. That's why the Babylonians came. They don't, they don't finger point and blame Babylon. Why was the second temple destroyed? They don't say, ah, oh, a bunch of Romans and it was all their fault. They say, sinat chinam, hate without reason. They blame themselves. That's actually a really good trait. We should learn something from this. Okay? You know, before we turn around and, 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 and put the blame on everybody else, we should initially start by saying, hey, actually, it's my fault. What does King David say in, in Psalm 51? My sin is ever before me. He doesn't blame anybody else. Okay? He blames himself, and that's actually a very good thing. And, uh, but we just discover that God is merciful, God is generous, God is gracious and kind, and, uh, and has mercy to a thousand generations. And, uh, and so, therefore, we should too. So we have an ideal, absolutely. Not saying that that's not there. Not saying this didn't actually occur, that people weren't 
taken out the, the front gate and stoned for adultery. They were, even in the time of Jesus, they were. There was a woman caught in adultery. They had stones. They were ready. Um, uh, we don't do that. Verse, uh, Aaron, that's an interesting verse that you brought up that, that he's he's faithful and will will forgive, I guess, to a thousand generations. Because doesn't that include the entire human race? Like from Adam to, you know, the end of time. Like we're only at I know. a few hundred, aren't we? Or a couple hundred or whatever it is. Like yeah. So there were 14 between like, wasn't it like, you know, like, um, like, you know, Abraham to Noah, was it? And then 14 till, I don't know, or right. something. 14 more till Jesus or... Something like that. They, those numbers are a little played around because they want to create a midrash. So they're not, they're not exactly exact, but they work theologically. So I wouldn't get too specific no. about, about a no, midrash. The concept then, a thousand generations, is like all of the human race from beginning to end, right? He's Sorry? very it, it's, it's emphasizing his mercy is what I'm saying. If he yes, it does. It absolutely does. And, um, and we have to hold the Bible in two, in two hands. On one hand, God is incredibly merciful. And on the other, we also know of the prophecies uh, of, of Revelation that describe a large number of people not doing so well uh, from the wrath of God. So you've got to hold both in, 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 in tension. God is incredibly merciful, but at the same time, a judge. And what's he going to judge us on? On his ideals, which we are seeing right now. So we are going to create a community in Canaan where uh, they have temple prostitutes and they don't value women as much as we do. But we will. We will value women. We will value their virginity. We will protect them as best as we possibly can. And so in verse 23, if there is a betrothed virgin, Okay, and it's very interesting, as, as uh, Shimshon pointed out, it's as though she's already married. Even though they actually haven't physically, right, A, consummated the marriage, or B, had a wedding service or anything. And a man meets her in the city and lies with her. Okay, not quite sure how that happened, but maybe implies rape, maybe does not. And then you shall bring them both out of the city gate and stone them to death. Because why? Because the young woman didn't cry out for help. Now, as if anyone's been to a town in Israel in the in antiquity in the uh, in archaeology, what do you notice about uh, Israelite uh, towns? Anyone been to the archaeology here in Israel? The um, the bowls, a lot of the um, pottery shards. Okay. Very compact. It's hard Correct. to hide things from your neighbours. Well done, Mike. Yes. You cannot hide. There, I mean, you, whenever, wherever you stand, there's a house about three feet away from you. <laughs> so if you're actually in a town, you are not a secret. Everybody knows. So the text is implying, right, so the, the man meets a woman in the city and they lie with her. They did this together. She could have cried out at any time, okay? There is no way to hide this, not when you, not when you see what archaeology is actually saying, okay? So she's complicit. This is not a chance meeting. This was an arranged meeting. This was certainly not uh, correct. So we, we, we get rid of them both. 
because she, she didn't cry out, even though she's in the city, and because he, he slept with his neighbor's wife. So you purge the evil from your midst. There is, again, a, a, a symbol of holiness, purity in society, honesty, as um, uh, Rory put in there. Yes, there's an element uh, of truth that needs to be part of this uh, community of God. However, there's also the possibility that women will be violated. They are pretty and uh, men can be hot-blooded and stupid and do all kinds of horrible things. And so if in the open country, so we're outside a city, uh, a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, then only the man dies because she could have cried out all she liked, but no one was ever going to protect her. But we will protect her in the end. In the end, when we find out, when she gets into town and she cries, we will uh, knock off the man. Uh, but you'll do nothing to the young woman. She's not committed an, an offence punishable by death. Okay. And uh, however, verse 28, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, that is, she's not given to somebody else, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, what do we do? We marry them off. <laughs> the man who lays with the gifts to the father 50 shekels of silver, so we half the price of, uh, of a betrothed woman. Okay? Um, uh, and, uh, but she will be his wife. Now, what does that entail? It means that he's going to have to do all the obligations. So he's going to have to pay for her. He's going to have to provide. He's going to have to produce children for her so she can actually have some children and then some grandchildren and have a lineage that is traced back to her um, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So this, this little series of rules, it can seem a little uh, bloody uh, at, at the time, um, uh, but really, what sort of society are we trying to create here? So put your thinking caps on. Here we are on the plains of Moab. We've knocked off some giant kings, Sichon and Og. We are about to enter Canaan, and then we're going to set up a community. What sort of community are we wanting? What is holding this society Together, let's start with that. Well, in, in an honour and shame society, okay, where there's this great reverence and fear of God, yeah, and uh, we have universal shared moral values here, yes, which support the continuity of community life, and, and, and it supports conformity to the rules, and there's this identifiable authority. Yeah, but on the downside. Uh, people saving face can be hypocritical yes. and can hide from others what's really going on. And Jesus had a lot to say about that. He did indeed. Yeah. And so that's what's, what's really true, even though man doesn't. Right. Yeah. yeah, and society really agrees with the laws. So that's what you sort of have all this upheaval in North America where there's sort of two different ideologies clashing now where they're not agreeing on, you know, how they want to, you know, unless you have a society, a group of people that are willing to follow the same moral laws, you can't live together in harmony, right? So if 
it seems like in Canada, especially that there can be almost like a homosexual or that whole revolution going on where, you know, you have a group of people that have certain values that they're really pushing forward. And I guess there's a concept too, that everyone presents and pushes forward their values, right? So whatever they believe in and value and worship, then, you know, culture is that externalized, right? So it's really a society that's just uh, breaking down compared to this society that would be so moral and pure because you wouldn't dare step on a line for fear of a rock coming at you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's Here's the thing. The, you only can keep this society in order if you actually physically do these rules. Yeah, I have a question about um, in Numbers chapter 5 about the sota. Okay. Is the, yeah, just, you know, uh, oh, that whole thing. It's not talked about here in Deuteronomy, but having the woman, she's, you know, if they think she's had an adulterous relationship, she has to drink the bitter waters. Yes, that is a very interesting um, passage, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Moses doesn't talk about this at all. He doesn't bring no. it up at exactly. all. Uh, um, all we do is uh, uh, prove whether she's a virgin or not and then start smacking some stones together. Um, but, uh, but here... In Deuteron in Numbers chapter five, you get a large sort of a, a long list of uh, of how the priests are involved in um, in deciding this case, which involves what appears to be a little bit of magic. Um, whereas in Deuteronomy, you don't use the priests; you actually use the elders. You actually take this part away from um, the the judiciary. The judiciary involved in other issues which we've discussed in, in earlier passages of Deuteronomy. The, um, the, the priesthood is very involved in, the, uh, in, in, in judging society. But when it comes to this issue uh, in Deuteronomy, we actually give it back to the, uh, the elders of the land. You give it back to the society. So, so there, I mean, there's absolutely no mention of her drinking the water of bitterness and bringing on that curse. I mean, nothing, absolutely nothing about that. Nothing. No. Moses is, uh, in this case, he's, what sort of society, what holds the society together? Yeah, both for God, but also for Moses. The, the, the words, the Torah. Okay. Okay. I'm going to keep pushing you here. Yeah. Yes, it does. The words of Torah, yeah, absolutely. But keep, keep going. There's something special, something incredibly powerful. Well, obedience to the law, right? Okay. Obedience to the law. Okay, come away from the law. Think a the lot. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. A okay. fear of the Lord. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Even more, <laughs> more basic than that. What holds basic society together? Families. Well done. Yep. It's that simple. What holds basic society together? God created man and a woman. There you go, Sharon. I'm all with you, baby. Okay. And uh, the two become one. And that's what keeps the society rock solid and, uh, and strong. And as soon as you pull that apart, you, you have to bring in the death penalty. As soon as you start messing with this, God says, no, we don't do that. Or as uh, Christine said, there's accountability. Absolutely. And God says, look, don't you start pointing the finger at, uh, at women you don't like. It's not your fault. 
It's not their fault. You marry her, she's all yours, baby. You keep it. You keep the society together. The society is strong when our men are running around providing for their women and when the women are running around getting pregnant and having more babies. Okay, now, before you all start throwing stones at me for being a male chauvinist pig dog, um, that is, is, is one of the things that kept the, the ancient world and the biblical society together. And, uh, and, and as soon as you start messing with that, you're in trouble. So much so that it's linked to holiness and it is linked to the purity of marriage, the purity of the relationship between males and females, uh, the, the, the character of God himself when he turns around and says, look, I'm a husband to you and I'm a really good husband. I haven't played around with any other nations, but you, my chosen nation, you seem to have played around with other types of gods and that's not really fair. Uh, but, hey, Aaron, uh, how, I mean, now, uh, obviously, they don't do the stoning. They don't do the, the sotza. No. They don't. Yeah. So, it, I mean, of course, it just goes to to the courts, right? But uh, when did that get taken away? That's a good question. I wish uh, Nama was here. She might be able to tell us some of the sort of local uh, rules in, um, in, the, in the rabbinic court these days. I'm not 100% sure what they all are. I've never been to one. Um, you still have honor killings in Arab yes, communities. Yes, you do. Yeah, yeah. Michelle, Michelle reminds you. Yeah, honor killings in Arab communities, so they're still around. Yeah, there's something like in the, they do also some floggings, like 100 floggings or something like that. But, you know, something very interesting about the beginning and the end is that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, there, there was that strife between the two of them, and then eventually it became the two children. And then, I mean, it just kept progressively, then they kept getting exiled from, from what was supposed to be perfect. And then right. so from husband and wife, then there's difficult, you know, there's a discussion, then you have the children that are having a hard time. And so eventually they just keep going further away. And then it gets to Noah, where there's a conflict, not only with parents and children, now the whole family. And then you get to the Tower of Babel, and it becomes a conflict as a society. And yep. then they, they eventually get to the Tower of, Bab of Babylon, which is exactly where they fell. That's where God calls um, God calls Abraham and brings, you know, the beginning and the end. So he, that's where he will take Abraham and bring them back. So where they fell. And it's amazing how you could just see the patterns in the Bible, you know, the parents and then the children and then the nucleus of the family, which is like the fiber of the society at the Tower of Babylon. Just, and that's exactly what's happening with us now. It's just, it's amazing how many. Um, as soon as you tear the family apart, your society is going to go down. Exactly. And and uh, and God knew that God knew what societies needed, and and uh, so through His servant Moses, He is doing His best to create stability within His community, some sort of order, some sort of self control, and uh, that includes to make sure that uh, children will also be around. Okay, There's, even though they are not mentioned here at all. Okay, because there is a man and a woman, um, it is going to be assumed that this will also produce uh, uh, children. So one final comment before uh, time runs out relates to the last verse. A man shall not take his father's wife, okay, uh, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Now, literally, the text says uh, doesn't uncover his father's nakedness. Uh, Skirt or clothing, okay, um, and uh, and we discussed a little bit already at the beginning about Ham and Canaan and uh, and Noah, but there is uh, one incidence 
in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, which actually is part of the Davidic line, actually, which involves a lady going in the middle of the night and uncovering somebody's skirt, clothing. Uh, who was that? Yeah. But that was a culture, wasn't it, to uncover the, just the feet, wasn't it? Not his... Ah, here's the problem. You think she his bone? (laughs) Okay. We know what the text says, but is that what it means? So we know what the text... The text in Deuteronomy just says, don't uncover your father's skirt. So, I mean, that's a real problem for the Scottish people because they've all got skirts on. But um, that's kind of okay with the rest of us here because we've only got jeans. But we obviously don't take it literally like that. We think about something else. Um, So uh, in the middle of the night, our little friend Ruth goes to Boaz and she uh, uncovers, literally in Hebrew, uncovers his leg. All right. And um, you should should see what the rabbinical commentaries are on about this. Um, So one, one comment, of course, says, Nothing happened. Ruth is absolutely pure. And uh, all she did was, you know, um, expose one of his legs to a little bit of cold and she came in the middle of the night so that he would not be embarrassed because no one would see that he was uh, alone with a girl. Isn't Ruth so wonderful? Everybody should be like Ruth. Another rabbi comes along and goes, um, what, are you, what are you kidding? Uh, we know what she did. Um, she knew that she needed to have Boaz do his deed, just like Judah and Tamar. And so they already have a biblical precedent where the man just is just not strong enough to do his job for whatever reason and needs a little bit of prompting from uh, the female participant because she's obviously... Um, a little more biblically minded than our hero. And so they that line of reasoning takes it a little further. The point is still is that uh, Ruth, in either way, whether she's pure and holy or something else, still does the right job. Either way you look at it, just like well, Tamar. She, is that, so the concept, Aaron, is that she proposes to him kind of thing? Correct. In our culture, in a sense, Yes, absolutely. But yes. it doesn't mean she jumped his bones. Like, it doesn't mean she had sex with him. One, one tradition is that he, she, she does, actually. But it doesn't, it's not the, 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 the issue is still she does the, the, like Tamar, she does the prompting. She's the one that goes out and says, listen, you're going to be mine because that's what you're supposed to do. And Aaron, there's uh, a... He's second in line as a Goel. There was one Goel before, so if that's right, I know, I know. It's it's always fun when 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 reading the Book of Ruth and people go, Boaz is just like the Messiah, and you go, wait, 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 wait. In the in the story, he's not first in line. Our Messiah is first in line. But he would have shamed her. He would have shamed her if that would have happened because he would have had to wait for the first Goel to say, "I don't want her." Yeah. But well, that's why, I don't, that's why I don't think they had sex, Aaron, because I right. think what it was, she was showing. No, no, no. Clearly you're not, you're not reading me, Sharon, again. I'm not saying they did. I'm saying there are two readings of the same text. No, and no, one says, 
and one doesn't. And so both are perfectly right, valid. Right, so my argument is... <laughs> Well, no, because the argument that you could make against the second one, though, Aaron, is that because the passage goes on and he understood and therefore he carried on and sought out to, you know, do the proper channels and, yeah. and win her love or, you know, do, you know, marry her yeah. properly. So oh, we know that he understood. Sharon, her. I, I hear what you're saying, but I'd really like you to go talk to about 1,000 rabbis here in Israel who would completely disagree with you. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 yeah, and come up with all, and they're, and they're going to read the text in its original Hebrew, and uh, and, and and talk. And, well, and covering uh, his leg, like I mean, that's quite a stretch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it's just there are two streams of of thought. There's always multiple readings of Bible. I hope we've covered that in in, in most of our studies. <laughs> the point is, okay, what is the intention? And the intention is Ruth knew what she was supposed to do. Tamar knew what she was supposed to do. And it took their prompting to get their men into action, uh, which yes, is a very exactly. interesting thought. Um, and and here, the key point is that you have to understand their culture, right, Aaron? So if oh, we don't yeah, understand totally. their culture, what their intention is, then we can't Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely, totally. Um, and and let's, let's remember, what is Moses trying to set up? And the intention is we've got, a, we've got a strong ideal of how men and women should relate, of, uh, of, what we, of, of how we should approach and value virginity within our community, how honour and shame can be positive. I know it can also be negative, but it can also have positive characteristics. And, uh, and so we're trying to set up a community that does reflect the intention of God, the heart of God, the ideal of God, that does not take away from mercy or forgiveness or for reconciliation or any of those things. It doesn't. It, uh, it just means that from the, the, the spirit of the law, okay, the, the drasha, the remez, the allegory, is that um, we know what the text says. Um, and it can, but it actually means a lot more. And then putting that into our society, we can see where our society fails. We do not value women much. In fact, we have made them exactly equal to men, so much so we've now refused to protect them. Mm -hmm. We've refused to guard them. We've refused to actually hold them in any form of value at all because they have none. They're just as valueless as the next idiot, okay, who happens to be a boy. And as it once, yes, so sad. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it is detrimental to our societies. We've pulled apart the family, which was what was holding uh, the, the children of Israel together. And, uh, and, uh, and, and we can see the fruit of, uh, of our labor, which is rather uh, unfortunate. Instead of having holiness, purity, honesty, and truth, we have all the reverse. Aaron, which... I, have a, I wanted to throw in uh, another thing about preserving, uh, you know, pr prompting and preserving. And, and, and I had never even imagined this. I think this is some, something from... I don't know if it's from a midrash, um, you know, when Lot, he left and, and his wife turned to stone and then the, the yeah. women, right. So, so um, then, you know, they of course had the father drink the wine and he got all married. And the interesting thing that I had heard is that they were not worried about producing 
children for themselves. It was all about the zara, about the seed. Yeah. And and so what they were doing, and so because of that very horrible, um, what is it called? Uh, when you have a father and son incest from this horrible incest that they say that there was still some merit in that of, of, you know, of following like some, you know, um, oh gosh, like the law. And so through that adulterous related, that, that horrible relationship, you have Ruth the Moabite and you have Solomon's wife and things like that. So I wanted to hear what your thoughts were on that. <laughs> they did the mitzvot, I guess the mitzvot above the whole. Uh, hmm. So it was about preserving the seed and not preserving their own, hmm. you know, a selfish gain for children. Right. I mean, there's a lot there. Okay. I guess that you start with, uh, and I know probably always would, what is the ideal? Right. What does God want us to do? Obviously, he wants us to have families. He produced us as males and females. He told us to, um, oh, yeah, see you, Bernardo. Uh, happy Hanukkah, Shabbat Shalom. Um, hope to see you uh, uh, next week for Chag Hanukkah because uh, we all realize that there's a special miracle that occurs over the next eight days. Um, donuts will not produce calories. Okay, that's um, a special miracle that occurs. I think only in Israel. And I'm sorry for the rest of you guys outside of the land. But um, anyway, um, so the ideal is that we have males and females that they get married and they um, and then they uh, produce children. It forms a stability within the society. The yeah, yeah once that breaks down, then you get all kinds of crazy stories, all kinds of people who are trying to trump the plans of God or to preserve uh, some sort of family line or honour or, or, or things like that. And, and, um, and, and, and the whole thing uh, broke down. Um, however, that was never the, uh, the, the plan of God. Um, the, uh, however, throw that in, in forgiveness and, um, and redemption, within those interesting relationships that appear in the Bible, how many of them end up with redeeming parts of the story? Like, for example, Lot and his daughters. Uh, they eventually produce Moab. And Moab eventually produces Ruth. Ruth eventually produces the Messiah. The Messiah, exactly. Same and thing with so, the Yes. So when our families, okay, we've got, we've, most of us have got kids or have had kids or whatever, and, there's a good chance that none of them, you know, that all of them, will, something will, will go wrong somewhere along the line. Um, God can still redeem. And if we don't believe that, then we're not reading the Bible right. Mm -hmm. You know, is that, uh, uh, that doesn't mean that the ideal, because it wasn't reached, we now need to get our rocks out and start smacking people. But it does mean that uh, we can pray that the Lord can redeem that situation that doesn't take away from consequences to actions. It doesn't take away from um, the results of, of not measuring up to the ideal or anything like that. Um, but it just means that we've got to keep it all in tension. And I think um, that's part of part of Jewish roots is to, to explore the faith and to remind ourselves that we live with tension mm. and uh, always, always striving for the ideal. Always with the help of the Spirit. 
Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.